Chapter 18 of The Mountebank by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 18. Without desiring to interfere with the sale of guide-books, I may say that Clermont-Ferrand is a great big town, the principal city of Auvergne, and devotes itself to turning out all sorts of things from its factories, such as Michelin and Bourguignard tyres, and all sorts of young lawyers, doctors, and schoolmasters from its university. It proudly claims Blaise Pascal as its distinguished son. It has gardens and broad walks and terraces along the old ramparts, whence one can see the round-backed pride, with its little pip on the top, of the encircling mountain range, the Puy de Dôme. And it also has a wilderness of smelly, narrow little streets, with fine old seventeenth-century mansions hidden in mouldering courtyards behind dilapidated porte-cochères. It has a beautiful Romanesque church in a hollow, and, on an eminence, an uninteresting restored cathedral, whose twin spires dominate the town for miles around. By way of a main entrance, it has a great open square, the Place de Jourde, the clanging ganglion of its tramway system, about which are situated the municipal theatre and the chief cafés, and from which radiate the main arteries of the city. On the entrance side, rises a vast mass of sculpture, surmounted by a statue of Vercingetorix, the hero of these parts, the gentleman over whose name we have all broken our teeth when learning to construe Caesar's De Bello Gallico. Passing him by for the first time, I should have liked to shake hands with him for old time's sake, to show my lack of ill-feeling. Now that you all know about Clermont-Ferrand, as the ancient writers say, I will tell you about Royat. You take a tram from Vercingetorix, and after a straight mile you are landed at the foot of a cup of the aforesaid encircling mountains, and, looking around, when the tram refuses to go any further owing to lack of rails, you perceive that you are in Royat-les-Bains. It consists, on the ground floor as it were, of a white établissement des bains surrounded by a little park, which is fringed on the further side by an open-air concert platform and a theatre, of a few rows of shops and a couple of cafés. You could play catch with a cricket ball across it. The hotels are perched around on the slopes of the hills, so that you may enter stately portals among the shops, but still be whirled downwards in a lift to the main floor, whence you look down on the green and tidy miniature place. From my room in the Royal Palace Hotel I had a view across the park, beyond which I could see the black crowds pouring out of the Clermont-Ferrand trams. The reason for this frenzied going and coming of human beings between Clermont-Ferrand and Roya I could never understand. I believe tram-riding is a hideous vice. Just connect up by tram-lines a place no one ever wants to go to with another no one ever wants to go from, and in a week you will have the inhabitants of those respective sleepy hollows running to and fro with the strenuous aimlessness of ants. Progressive politicians will talk to you of the wonders of transport. Well transport or madness? What does it matter? I mean, what does it matter in the course of this narrative? I had a pleasant room, I say, with a good view blocked above the tram terminus by a vine-clad mountain. I called on a learned gentleman who knew all about hearts and blood pressures. He prescribed baths and unpleasant waters, and my cure began. All this by way of preamble to the statement that I had comfortably settled down in Royat a week before Les Petits Patous were billed to appear in Clermont-Ferrand. Having nothing in the world to do save attend to my internal organs, I spent much time in the old town, which I had not visited for many years, match-hunting, 
with indifferent success, being at first my main practical pursuit. Then a natural curiosity leading me to inquire the whereabouts of the chief music halls, and vacant ignorance manifesting itself on the faces of the policemen and waiters whom I interrogated, I abandoned matches for the chase of music halls. Eventually I became aware that I was pursuing a phantom. There were no music halls. All had been perverted into picture palaces. I read Lackaday's letter again. There it was as clear as print. So we proceed on our pilgrimage. We are booked for Clermont-Ferrand for the third week in August. I hate it, because I hate it. But I am looking forward to it, because my now prosperous friend Bacchus has arranged to sing during my stay there, at the casino of Roya. And sure enough, the next day they stuck up bills by the park gates, announcing the coming of the celebrated tenor, Monsieur Horatio Bacchus. It was only later that the great flaming poster of a circus, the Cirque Vendramin, which had pitched its tent for a fortnight past at Clermont-Ferrand, caught my eye. There it was, amid announcements of all sorts of clowns and trapezists and Japanese acrobats. Special engagement of the world-famed eccentrics Les Petits Patous. If I uttered profane words, I am sure the recording angel followed an immortal precedent. In order to spy out the land, I went then and there to the afternoon performance. The circus was pitched in a disgruntled field somewhere near the dismally remote railway station. The tent was crowded with the good inhabitants of Clermont-Ferrand, who, since they could not buy sugar or matches or coal for cooking, must spend their money somewhere. I scarcely had entered a circus since the good old days of the Cirque Rocambeau. And what a difference! They had a few uninspiring horses and riders for convention's sake. But the haute cale had vanished. Not even a rouged and painted ghost of Mademoiselle René Saumur remained. It was a ragged, old-fashioned, acrobatic entertainment, with the mildewed humour of antiquated clowns. But they had a star turn, a juggler of the school of saint Valli, an amazing fellow. And then I remembered having seen the name on the last week's bill, printed in the great eighteen-inch letters, which were now devoted to Les Petits Patous. Next week, Lackaday would be the star turn. But still. I went back to Roya, feeling miserable. I was not elated, by finding a letter from Lady Oriole, which had been forwarded from my St. James's Street chambers. She was in Paris, organising something in connection with the devastated districts. She reproached me for not having answered a letter written a month ago, written at her ancestral home, where she had been summoned to her father's gouty chairside. I might, she said, have had the politeness to send a line of condolence. Well, I might, but whether to her or to Lord Muncher, whose gout was famous in the early nineties, I did not know. Yes, I ought to have answered her letter. But then you see I am a villainous correspondent. I was running about, and doctors were worrying me, and I could not have answered without lying about Andrew Lackaday, who, leaving her without news of himself, had apparently vanished from her ken. She had asked me all sorts of pointed questions about Lackaday, which I, having by that time read his manuscript, found very embarrassing to answer. Of course, I intended to write— one always does in such cases. There was nothing for it now but to make immediate and honourable amends. I explained my lack of courtesy as best I could, bewailed her father's gout and her dreary ministrations on an afflicted nobleman, regretted incidentally her lack of news of the gallant general, and spread myself over my own sufferings and my boredom in a little hole of a place, 
where no one was to be seen under the age of seventy-three, drew, I flatter myself, rather a smart picture of the useless and gasping ancients flocking pathetically to the futile fons juventutis, and what business had they to be alive anyhow during this world of food shortage? And then, commending her devotion to the distressed and homeless, expressed the warm hope that I should meet her in Paris on my way back to England. It was the letter of a friend and a man of the world. It put me into a better humour with myself. I dined well on the broad terrace of the hotel, smoked a cigar in defiance of doctor's orders, and after an instructive gastronomical discussion with a comfortable old Bordeaux merchant with whom I picked acquaintance, went to bed in a selfishly contented frame of mind. Two or three mornings later, going by tram into Clermont-Ferrand, and passing by the great café on the east side of the Place de Jaude, opposite the statue of Vercingetorix, I ran, literally stumbling over long legs outstretched from his hair to the public danger, into Andrew Lackaday. It was only the instance of disentanglement and mutual apologies that we were aware of each other. He sprang to his great height, and held out both his long arms, and grinned happily. "'My dear fellow, what a delight! Fancy seeing you here! Elodie!' If he had given me time, I should have recognised her before he spoke. There she was in the flesh, in a great deal of flesh, more even than I had pictured. She had a coarse, dark face, with the good humour written on it that loose features and kind soft eyes are able so often to express, and white teeth, rather too much emphasised by carmined lips, above which grew the faint black down of many women of the South. She was dressed quite tastefully, white felt hat, white skirt, and a silken knitted yellow chandet. Elodie, I present Monsieur le Capitaine Hilton, of whom you have heard me speak so much. To me, Madame Patou, said he. Madame, said I. We shook hands. I professed enchantment. I have spoken much about you to Captain Hilton, said Lackaday quickly. So it seems, said I, following the good fellow's lead, as if I were renewing an old acquaintance. "'But you speak French like a Frenchman,' cried Elodie. "'It is my sole claim, madame,' said I, "'to your consideration.' She laughed, obviously pleased, and invited me to sit. The waiter came up. "'What would I have?' I murmured, "'Amer piquant curaçoa, the most delectable anti-meal beverage left in France, now that absinthe is as extinct as the stuff wherewith the good Vercingetorich used to gladden his captains after a successful bout with Caesar.' Elodie laughed again, and called me a true Parisian. I made the regulation reply to the compliment. I could see that we became instant friends. "'Mais, mon cher ami,' said Lacadet, "'you haven't answered my question. What are you doing here in Clermont-Ferrand?' "'Didn't I write to you?' "'No.' "'I hadn't. I had meant to, just as I had meant to write to Oriol Dane.' I wonder whether, in that final court from which I have not heard of any theologian suggesting the possibility of appeal, they will bring up against me all the unanswered letters of my life. If they do, then certainly shall I be a condemned spirit. I explained airily, just as I have explained to you. Coincidences of the heart, madame, said I. She turned to Andrew. He has said that, just like Horace. I realised the compliment. I liked Elodie. Dress her at whatever rue de la paix or rag-swindlers that you pleased, you would never metamorphose the daughter of the people that she was into the lady at ease in all company. She was a bit manieree, 
on her best behaviour. But she had the Frenchwoman's instinctive knowledge of conduct. She conveyed, very charmingly, her welcome to me as a friend of Andrew's. "'Horace, that's my friend Bacchus I've told you about,' said Lagaday. "'He'll be here tomorrow. I should so much like you to meet him.' "'I'm looking forward,' said I, "'to the opportunity.' We talked on indifferent subjects, and in the meanwhile I observed Lackaday closely. He seemed tired and careworn. The bush of carroty hair over his ears had gone a yellowish-grey, and more lines seamed his ugly and rugged face. He was neatly enough dressed in grey flannels, but he wore on his head the latest model of a French straw hat. The French hatter left to his own devices has ever been the maddest of his tribe. A high, coarsely woven crown surrounded by a quarter-inch brim, which relates him much more nearly to Petit Patou than to the British General of Brigade. His delicate fingers nervously played with cigarette or glass stem. He gave me the impression of a man holding insecurely on to intelligible life. Mild hunger translating itself into a conception of the brain, I looked at my watch. I waved a hand to the row of waiting cabs with linen canopies on the other side of the blazing square. Madame, said I, let me have the pleasure of driving you to Roya and offering you déjeuner. My dear chap, said Andrew, impossible. We play this afternoon. Twice a day, worse luck. We have all sorts of things to arrange. Elodie broke in. They had arranged everything already that morning. Their turn did not arrive till three-forty. There was time for a dozen lunches, especially since she would go early and see that everything was prepared. She excused herself to me in the charmingest way possible. Another day she might perhaps, with my permission, have the pleasure. But to-day she insisted on André lunching with me alone. We must have a thousand things to say to each other. Dinner, she smiled, rising. I leave you. There's not a word to be said. Monsieur le Capitaine, see that the General eats instead of talking too much. She beamed. Au grand plaisir de vous revoir. We stood bareheaded and shook hands and watched her make a gracious exit. As soon as she crossed the tram lines, she turned and waved her fingers at me. "'A charming woman,' said I. Lackaday smiled in his sad, babyish way. "'Indeed she is,' said he. We drove into Roya in one of the cool, white, canopied Victorias. "'You know we are playing in a circus,' he said, indicating a huge playbill on the side of a wall. "'Yes,' said I. On revient toujours à ses premiers amours. <laughs> it's not that, God knows, he replied soberly. But we were out for these two weeks of our tour. One can't pick and choose nowadays. The eccentric comedian will soon be as dead as his ancestor, the court jester. The war has almost wiped us out. Those music halls, of the variety type, that have not been turned, through lack of artists, into picture palaces, are now given over to review. I've been here at Clermont-Ferrand many times, but now—he shrugged his shoulders—I had an engagement, at my ordinary musical terms, offered me at the Cirque Vendremont to fill in the blank weeks, and I couldn't afford to refuse. That's why, my friend, you see me now, where you first met me, in a circus. And Madame Patou? said I. I'm afraid, he sighed, it is rather a come-down for Elodie. We reached the hotel and lunched on the terrace, and I did my best, with the aid of the maître d'hôtel, to carry out the lady's injunctions. 
As a matter of fact, she knew not a fear that he should miss sustenance through excessive garrulity. He seemed ill at ease during the meal, and I did most of the talking. It was only after coffee and the last drop of the last bottle in the hotel, one of the last, alas, in France, of the real ancient chateaux of the Grand Chateau, that he made some sort of avowal or explanation. After beating about the bush a bit, he came to the heart of the matter. I thought the whole war was axed out of my life, with everyone I knew in it or through it. I wrote all that stuff about myself because I couldn't help it. It enabled me to find my balance, to keep myself sane. I had to bridge over, connect somehow, the Andrew Lackaday of 1914 with the Andrew Lackaday of 1919. A couple of months ago I thought of sending it to you. You know my beginnings, my dear old father, Ben Flint, and so forth. You came bang into the middle of my most intimate life. I knew in what honour and affection you were held among those whom I, to whom I, am infinitely devoted. I— He paused a moment, and tugged hard at his cigar, and regarded me with bent brows and compressed lips of his parade manner. I am a man of few friendships. I gave you my unreserved friendship. It may not be worth much, but there it is. He glared at me as though he would defy me to mortal combat, and when I tried to get in a timid word, he wiped it out of my mouth with a gesture. I, I wanted you to know the whole truth about me. Once I never thought about myself. I wasn't worth thinking about. But the war came, and the war ended, and I'm so upside down that I'm bound to think about myself and clear up myself in the eyes of the only human being that could understand, namely you, or go mad. But I never reckoned to see you again in the flesh. Our lives were apart as the poles. It was in my head to write to you something to that effect, when I should receive an answer to my last letter. I never dreamed that you should meet me now, as I am. It never occurred to me that I might value your friendship and take a little trouble to seek you out. I must confess, said he, that I did not suspect that anyone, even you, would have thought it worth while. I laughed. He was such a delicious simpleton. So long as he could regard me as someone on the other side of the grave, he could reveal to me the intimacies of his emotional life. But as soon as he realised his confidence in the flesh, embarrassment and confusion overwhelmed him. And, ostrich again, thinking that, once his head was hidden in the sands of petty patuism, he would be invisible to mortal eye, he persuaded himself that his friends would concur in his supposed invisibility. "'My dear fellow,' I said, "'why all this apologia? "'As to your having ever told me or written to me about yourself, "'I have kept the closest secrecy. "'Not a human soul knows through me the identity of General Lackaday with Petit Patou. "'No,' I repeated, meeting his eyes under his bent brows, "'not a human being knows even of our first meeting in the Cirque Rocambeau. "'And as for Madame Patou, whom you have made me think of always as Elodie, "'well, my discretion goes without saying.' And as for putting into shape your reminiscences, I shouldn't dream of letting anyone see my manuscript before it had passed through your hands. If you like, I'll tear the whole thing up, and it will all be buried in that vast oblivion of human affairs of which I am only too temperamentally capable. He threw his cigar over the balustrade of the terrace, and stretched out his long legs, his hands in his pockets, and grinned. No, don't do that. One of these days I might be amused to read it. 
Besides, it took me such a devil of a time to write. It was good of you to keep things to yourself, although I laid down no conditions of secrecy. I might have known it. He stared at the hillside opposite, with its zigzag path through the vines, marked by the figures of zealous pedestrians. And then he said suddenly, "'If I asked you not to come and see our show, you would set me down as a fantastical coward.' I protested. "'How could I, after all you have told me?' "'I want you to come. Not to-day. Things might be in a muddle. One never knows. But to-morrow. It will do me good.' I promised. We chatted a little longer, and then he rose to go. I accompanied him to the tram, his long, lean body overwhelming my somewhat fleshy insignificance. And while I walked with him, I thought, why is it that I can't tell a man who confides to me his inmost secrets to buy, for God's sake, another hat? The following afternoon I went to the Cirque Vendramin. I sat in a front seat. I saw the performance. It was much as I have already described to you. Except perhaps for his height and ungainliness, no one could have recognised Andrew Lackaday in the painted clown Petit Patou. His grotesquerie of appearance was terrific. From the tip of his red-pointed wig to the bottom of his high heels, he must have been eight feet. I should imagine him to have been out of scale on the musical stage. But in the ring he was perfect. The mastery of his craft, the cleanness of his jugglery, amazed me. He divested himself of his wig, and did a five-minutes act of lightning impersonation with a trick felt hat, the descendant of the Chapeau de Tambourin. The ex-Kaiser, Foch, Clemenceau, Lloyd George, President Wilson, a Bosch prisoner, a helmeted Tommy, a Poulou, which was marvellous considering the painted Petit Patou face. For all assistance, Elodie held up a cheap bedroom wall-mirror. He played his one-stringed fiddle. I admired the technical perfection of the famous cigar act. I noted the stupid bewilderment with which he received a typhoon of hoops thrown by Elodie, and his waggish leer when, clown-wise, he had caught them all. If the audience packed within the canvas amphitheatre had gone mad in applause over this exhibition of exquisite skill interlarded with witty patter, I might have been carried away into enthusiastic appreciation of a great art. But the audience, as far as applause could be the criterion, missed the exquisiteness of it, guffawed only at the broadest planning, and applauded finally just enough to keep up the heart of the management and Les Petits Patous. I have seen many harrowing things in the course of a complicated life, but this, I reckon, was one of the chief amongst them. I thought of the scene a year ago at Mansfield Park. The distinguished soldier, with his rainbow row of ribbons, modestly confused by Evadne's summons to the household on his appointment to the brigade. The English setting, the old red gabled manor-house, the green lawn, the bright English faces of old Sir Julian and his wife, of young Charles the hero-worshipper, the light in Oriel's eyes, the funny little half-ashamed English ceremony, again the gaunt, grim, yet childishly smiling figure in khaki, the ideal of the scarred and proven English leader of men. The scene shimmered before me, and then I realised the same man in his abominable travesty of God's image, bowing before the tepid plaudits of an alien bourgeoisie in a filthy, smelly canvas circus, and I tell you, I felt the agony that comes when time has dried up within one the fount of tears. End of chapter 18